you are not alone if you are suffering with your mental health. In fact, you are far from alone. There is hope and there is help. And those are the messages that both sportscasting legend Dan Patrick and brilliant comedian Gary Goleman want you to know. Everyone's mental health experiences are their own. So Dan and Gary share their stories in separate companion episodes. Both my guests are honest and authentic. They are vulnerable and strong. You can be both at the same time. Maybe their stories will connect with you if you're going through something or resonate if someone you care about is struggling. Now, I did not know enough about the issues surrounding the mental health crisis. And then some years ago, I hosted the Invictus Games, got to know some veterans coping with invisible wounds of war. Their bravery was impressive, and spending time with them was powerful. In 2016, Rashan Salam, Heisman Trophy winner for my alma mater, took his own life. I really like Rashan. I was hit hard by that, and I wish I had been more aware of the depth of Rashan's pain. Many millions are really struggling right now, as much as ever. And our hope for these episodes is to contribute to the conversation and help erase the stigma. So depression, that was important. It's in my family. And, you know, that's when my wife said, you can help one person. That's great. And if you help that one person who tells that one person who tells that one person, you know, that's important. And once you do it, like there, it was cathartic for me, but it was, it was scary because you're going, I tell people a lot of things. Now I'm really telling them something. If you follow sports at all, you've been aware of Dan Patrick's work for a long time. He's one of the most talented broadcasters I've ever worked with. Met him more than 20 years ago at ESPN. He was one of the best sports center anchors ever. At NBC, hosted Football Night in America. Did great work hosting the Olympics. The Dan Patrick Show has been a fixture forever on national radio. It is now also on the Peacock Network. So Dan, one morning you go on your show, the Dan Patrick Show, and you say, I'm going to take a, a left turn here. And you announce that you've been carrying around a secret going to explain what that is and where that led you. What was the secret you were talking about? Well, I think for about six years, it was an open secret that I was kind of struggling every day to get to work. And I had been going through, I had a condition called polymyalgia rheumatica, which is PMR. And it normally hits older people. And I was getting it or first glimpses. And I was, I think, 55, uh, 56. And I went and got diagnosed and it, it, you feel like you have the flu every day, but you don't, you're not nauseous. You just have the aches. And I, I was having a hard time tying my shoes in the morning and, you know, we moved all of my clothes downstairs. So I didn't have to walk up steps cause I had a hard time doing that. And I just, I, and I thought, you know what? And I just started taking um, a, a drug to combat this. That was kind of an exploratory, uh, drug called uh, Actemra. And I, I was just, I was in a, a fog a little bit and I was forgetting things on the air and I, I, I was starting to feel embarrassed. And I remember that I, 
you know, why not just come forward and just say, look, this is what I'm going through. So the audience knows with me that if I make a mistake, then, then they understand that I'm making mistakes here, which I normally wouldn't do. I couldn't remember Albert Pujols' name three different occasions. I just couldn't, I couldn't bring it up. Uh, Tom Izzo's name, I couldn't bring it up. I, I forgot how to start my car one morning. I went to the grocery store to buy something and I had to call my wife to ask her why I went to the store when it was my idea to go to the store. And I started to get really concerned if I was going to continue to do this while going through this treatment. I'd get hooked up to an IV once a month at the hospital for special surgery in New York. And it was really powerful stuff. And, and you know, they'd monitor me for a half hour when it was done with my vitals. I went four months going through these treatments, didn't even know if it'd work. And they said, one morning, you'll know. And I would get out of bed every morning after four months. And I realized it was Groundhog Day. And it, it didn't, then it finally worked where I, I took away probably 60% of my pain. But I was still forgetting things going through this treatment. And I just said to the Danettes, you know what? If I can help some, I'm going through depression. I mean, I, I was all over the place. And I just said, if I can tell somebody something that the audience knows, but also let them know if you go through something like this, you know, it doesn't know what you do. It doesn't discriminate. And, you know, it kind of tapped me on the shoulder and I was going through some serious depression and, uh, you know, it, it was finally time to just let everybody kind of in on the secret. Well, there's a lot to unpack there and, and talk <laughs> about and get into. And, and I think that you showing that vulnerability will be very helpful. And I, I hope helpful to you as well. Let's back up and talk about the pain. So you're, you're 55 years old and climbing the stairs is a problem yep. and getting out of bed is a problem. Describe for those who haven't had polymyalgia or rheumatica, what, what that pain was like every morning. It was just, it, it was this dull ache that just hung there. And, and you'd wake up in the morning and I felt it in my knees right away and in your hand. So it's, all your joints. So it doesn't, you know, it's not like one side of your body or one part of your body. It's both knees. It's both hips. It's both ankles, both hands, both shoulders, my neck every single day. And then they had me on prednisone. I don't know if you've ever been on prednisone. Hopefully you never get on prednisone because that is a, a powerful drug. And I was taking pretty high doses. Um, but it, my mood swings were all over the place. So it would take away the pain magically. And then, but I would be all over the map, all this energy, or I wouldn't say a word. And, you know, so my wife's trying to troubleshoot this. And, you know, it was, I, I'd gotten to the point where I, I didn't know if there was going to be any kind of solution. And I, I ended up going to Vail, Colorado to visit my daughter. And I went in there to the Stedman Clinic. And the doctor said, have you tried this? I said, I'll try anything. And he said, well, you're going to be hooked up to an IV. I said, I don't care. And if I don't go and see him, I don't know where I am today because he told me to see this doctor, Dr. Lally at, you know, hospital for special surgery. And she said, look, we're trying this on rheumatoid arthritis patients. Do you want to try it? And I said, yes, I try it. And so I was, you know, probably one of the first people in the United States to do it, but I, you know, I, I was a willing participant. I was just a guinea pig because I couldn't, this pain was so, I didn't play golf for seven years. I was going to say, you're, you're, act, you're an athlete. You play yeah. basketball. You love golf. Activity is a part of your life. You're, you're 55 years old. You're far from old. And now you're, you're being robbed of that. For people who suffer pain in any form, they know that 
it takes away your joy. Yeah. You, you can't be carefree. You can't have happiness for long. It's hard to even be present, right? Because the present is painful and you're looking for a way to get away from that. So j- just that daily pain, and we'll get to where it led you emotionally, but the physical piece of it, and you, you got to go and you got to do a show every day. Yeah. I mean, in 2012, so you're, you're doing football night in America in the fall, the London Olympics that summer, you're doing your show. It's a heavy workload high, high profile, demanding things. How are you keeping it together for that? I have no idea. I really don't, Chris, because I would take a nap at football night in America. I would get there at noon. We'd watch the pregame shows. And then at uh, halftime of the first uh, set of games at one o'clock, I go take a nap for 45 minutes just because my body was just screaming out that, you know, just lie down. And then I would get up at four o'clock and then I'd prep, we'd start taping at five and then I would work, you know, the rest of the evening doing football night in America, uh, in the Olympics, the London Olympics, you know, I was taking prednisone, but you know, you, you just kind of do that. That that's a grind. That's like 22 consecutive days where you're doing six hours of live TV. And part of it was you look forward to getting on the air. So I didn't sit around and think about it. And, you know, my wife would just say, stop moping. Like, come on, let's go take a walk. Hey, but I couldn't pick up anything more than a wedge when I played golf. Mm. And then I, I didn't want to shoot basketball. And that's all I love. You know, I love shooting hoops and couldn't play golf. I, I quit my uh, membership at a golf club. And, uh, you know, I just resigned myself to the fact that this is what I was going to have. I went to the person who coined the phrase PMR. Older, he's probably in his 90s now. I walk in and he goes, I go, I, I got to, you know, uh, I want you to see if I have, he goes, you got PMR. I go, no, I want you to diagnose. I goes, I can tell you have PMR. I said, well, shouldn't I take a blood test? He goes, go next door, come back. You have PMR. I go next door, I come back. He says, you have PMR. I said, well, how do you, you know, how do we combat it? He goes, uh, we give you prednisone. I said, well, how did I get it? We don't know. How do I get rid of it? We don't know. And so I leave this doctor's office and I'm going, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. And, you know, I just, I don't know. I think I'd, I, I'm fortunate I had an outlet and I'm fortunate I had guys that I come in every day and they made me laugh. They took my mind off of it because once the show got, was over, I got back in the car and then I went back home and then I didn't want to do anything. Mm-hmm. And then you sit around and you just, you know, it just starts to, uh, the walls start to close in a little bit on you. Yeah, the show must go on is a phrase that exists for a reason because that's the mentality, right? Whether it's what you do, what I do, what they do on Broadway or films, you you just get through whatever physical or emotional pain you're dealing with and you just do the job because that's what you're expected to do. There's a long tradition of it. So you have to sit there in that chair and be funny and be sharp and, and have your A game every single day while dealing with all this. I, I guess... You know, this job and sports in general is viewed as a diversion, a distraction from real world stuff. So that that may have helped because you got to, by the way, prep for this show. You have to watch games and read stuff. You can't just turn up and know what you need to know to do the show. So I guess it, it must have been therapeutic in that way to have sports as an outlet for as many hours as you could do. Yeah. And, and I think when, but I also would, in the back of my mind, I would look at the clock and know that, okay, the show is going to end in X number of minutes, which meant I had to, now I left my little dream world here that we call, you know, radio or TV. And, 
you know, it, it just start, you just, I can't explain it uh, other than, you know, you were in this, I was in a world that nobody could understand. And you're trying to explain, I, I would have my wife, if I, let's say we took a plane, a plane uh, trip to Cincinnati, two hour flight. And I would say, honey, you got to hold my hand when I'm getting up because I didn't want people to think that, I, I mean, I was, I felt frail mm. and she would, I can't say we'd go to a movie and I'd say, I need help getting up. I'd go to dinner and I'd say, I need help getting up. It's just, if I sit for 30 minutes or more, and so I'm sitting in my job and I get up and then I never want you to feel like, oh my God, I, I felt 80. If, if this is 80, I, you know, I'm in trouble, but I just couldn't, people didn't realize what was going on. And then you go, how did you, how did they not realize? How did, how did someone that see you, you're recognizable, they come up, they want to talk to you. They want a picture. It's back in the era when that's, that stuff went on. And then you, you don't want them to know what you're carrying. And that's understandable. Few of us would, but now that's extra energy taken to conceal it as well. I just, even if I was trying to explain it though, Chris, it was, I couldn't conceal it. I just couldn't explain it. So if I go, Hey, it's like the flu, but you don't, you're not nauseous. And they go, Oh, well, how do you get rid of it? And this is, if I had a dollar for every time I'm asked the following, have you been tested for Lyme? And I go, yes, I, I was probably tested for Lyme 20 times, 20 different blood tests. I, I took so many blood tests and I, it always came back to the same. And then you're trying to tell somebody something and then they'll go, oh, okay. They don't understand it because it's not something that is, you know, it's not like a broken arm or knee surgery. It's, I got something to do with my joints and it doesn't allow me to move very well. Oh, okay. And that's about all you can explain to people. So, but I, look, I, I don't, people tried to be nice and understand it. And I, but you know, when you ask somebody, Hey, how are you feeling? Do you really want to know how they're feeling? No. But you ask. And then if I say, do you really want to know? Because I was trying to be you know, fair to my friends. You don't want to know. Yes. I'm doing okay. Well, there's different ways of handling this, different ways of handling all sorts of pain. Some people with a stiff upper lip, reveal nothing to anyone, even those close to them don't know. Others are, oh, I got a hangnail and you got to hear about that for a half hour. I, I know that you're kind of in that former group. And that's, that's sort of what I grew up around, family members who didn't share things like that. But that also carries its own burden and its own weight. So you, you leave the studio and you're on the drive home and what's going through your head and now you've got all these hours to fill and, and you've got all this pain to cope with. Well, it, it got to the point where I, I tried to find a longer way to go home. I would, I would ask my wife, you know, I would do errand. Like I had to do something before I went home because once I got home and it was around six o'clock, then I wanted to self-medicate. And I, I would say to my wife, you know, I'll wait till seven o'clock to have something to drink. And I would, so then it would be 6.45, then it was 6.30, then it was 6.15, then it was six o'clock. And I was going down a bad road because I just, I wanted the pain to go away. Mm. I didn't want to take prednisone. And so, you know, I got a medicinal marijuana license. Like I was like, how do I get through each day? Because I know what it's going to be like when I wake up in the morning. And I wanted to basically knock myself out, go to sleep, you know, and not. So it became a daily thing from, from whatever it was, six o'clock until you went to bed. That, that yeah. was sort of the pain management was the only thing on your mind at that point. And then I, I didn't know I had neuropathy, so I couldn't sleep through the night. I would sleep in three hour increments and then my, my fingers and feet would like numb up. And then, you know, so it was a constant 
like you're up and then you're trying to go back to sleep and you know, you wake up in the morning and you realize that here it is again, that pain is there every single morning. But you know, God love my wife every single day for seven years. She asked me, how do you feel every single day, every single day. And that one day when I said, I, I feel okay. And she's like, what? I go, I, I don't know. Something's different there. And that's, you know, after the four month period of doing these IVs and, um, you know, I just said, you know, I'm going to keep doing it for a little while. And then, uh, you know, I did it for 12 months. How do you give yourself a pep talk to do that? I, I don't know. I just, you know, I, I love working every day and I, I just, there's something about that. That's therapeutic that I was, I was able to get up and it took me such a long time. It's 45 minutes of that pain was always there. And then I would take a shower and then I would feel a little bit better. There'd be days my wife would help me with my shoes, my jacket, and I'd get out the door. And then once I got to work, then I just, I don't know. I just, you kind of shed it. You have to leave it. You just, it, it, you know, it, nobody wanted to hear about it, but I wanted them to hear about it when I got to a point where I wasn't doing my job. And that's, you know, that was where I said, I got to tell people that I'm not doing my job correctly. This is why also depression, that was important. It's in my family. And, you know, that's when my wife said, you can help one person. That's great. And if you help that one person who tells that one person who tells that one person, you know, that's important. And once you do it, like there, it was cathartic for me, but it was, it was scary because you're going, I tell people a lot of things. Now I'm really telling them something. And that's as personal as I, I could get, but I kept thinking, this is the audience. I mean, why it's reciprocated. You invest in me. I, I should invest in you. I should let you know what you mean to me. And that's what I did. I just said, this is how important you are to me. I want you to understand what I'm going through. And you know, if it helps you, you want, you know, somebody then great. We're all in this together. And it was freeing. And the number of people who have responded and, and continue to respond has been, you know, that's, that's the reward of all of this. It was really, really beneficial, I think, for, you know, certainly myself, but those on the other end. You said scary. And I think I understand what you mean, but that kind of fear has different meanings. Why, why was it scary to you, the idea about letting people in on what you were feeling and, and the thoughts you were having? I just thought, gosh, I'm really opening myself up here. And I didn't, at the time, I didn't know who I was. Like, I'm trying to figure out who I am going through all of this. You know, as a, as a father, you know, you got three daughters, you want to walk down the aisle. I have a son who's getting married. Like, you're just like. What do you mean you didn't know a, who you were? You, you had a pretty well established idea of who you were at this point in your life. But this was taking away your ability to kind of recognize yourself. Well, I didn't know what I was going to be. I, like, I didn't know. I, I was having memory loss. Um, I, I was still having pain. I, I just wasn't sure what I was going to be and who I was going to be. Um, I didn't lose my identity as much as I was like, as I move forward here, can I be great? Can I be good? Can I do this for a living? You have a very high standard that you want to meet for yourself. I understand that. And when that slips, when that's not there, you might be the only one who knows it. Paul, Listeners might... But few, very few, Dan, would, yeah. would know that. But that doesn't matter because you want to be, you want to meet your own standard. And it's got to be pretty, pretty effing scary to think that this might continue to a point where you couldn't come close to what you have been doing. 
Yeah, and that's where you're losing your identity. Like, am I still at the top of my game? And and there would be moments where I would have these memory lapses, and Paulie's my producer, and Paulie would turn his microphone in on into my headphones and say, uh, Mark Cuban, or, or uh, you know, he'd say Atlanta Hawks, because he could tell I was getting to a point where I go, where where am I? So when you leave here, it's not like, it's just nobody sees it when you leave here. That's where I was like, God, I can't remember what's going on. Like, you know, when I forgot how to turn on my car, which all it is is a push button. Mm. And, and so that's where you're going, God, I got to get my shit together here. Like, how do I? So it, it, I kind of got lost in it, but I was, I, I revealed it and I didn't look back. It was just scary when I was revealing it. I didn't even tell my guys who I work with because I thought they would talk me out of it. Like, just to say, you don't want to be that revealing. And I just thought, I, what, you know, who am I to? I don't have to hide. I shouldn't hide. You know, we all keep secrets, but this is, this is something that I can share that we all benefit in. And I take great pride if somebody comes back to me and says, thank you for talking about depression. Thank you. Um, because I think we all think, you have a great life, Chris. You've got a great family, great wife. You can't be depressed. You know, hey, I got a great wife. I got four kids. I can't be depressed. Well, you can. And so this all, like it was the perfect storm that hit me that I, I you know, had not been able to work out. I didn't do anything. I didn't want to go anywhere. I was embarrassed if I sat down for more than 30 minutes to get up. Like, you know, you kind of lose yourself a little bit. Like, man, I don't want to be this way. But then everybody realized and he said, everybody, come on in. <laughs> come on in under the tent. It's a big tent here because there are a lot of people. Come on in, everybody. Now we all understand that. But uh, you know, I got a very understanding family, and uh, that certainly paid off. Well, depression is a topic that's been important to me and lots of people. And I, I do want to get into that. You said you had it in your family, so you have an awareness of what it's like. You understand that it's not a character flaw. It's a flaw in chemistry. It's not in your control. But it's very, very tough to, to find a way to navigate out of that. So when you're, when you're, you're feeling this pain and obviously you're going through all the, the scary thoughts, how did that translate into sort of mental difficulties and, and take you sort of to a, a dark place? I didn't know I was there. I think a lot of people who are depressed don't know they're there. And I just, I would just get to a place where I didn't want to talk. You know, I just sit and then, I didn't realize I wasn't talking and my wife would say, what's wrong? I go, nothing. But I, I was in my own world and I, I just, I don't know. I let it, uh, kind of ease its way in and then it doesn't leave easily. Um, and you know, I kept thinking, you know, everything in my mindset, I can figure this out. I can get out of this. I can be better than this. I can be stronger than this. And then I realized that I, I, I couldn't. And that's, you know, when, you know, I just had to figure out, can I, do I need to talk to somebody? And then the, you know, I'm stubborn. I don't want to talk to somebody. I don't need to talk to somebody. So I kind of just, you know, threw myself into a deeper, deeper hole. And I pulled into the driveway one time and I'm embarrassed, but I went in right into the garage. And I just said, if I shut that garage door, I'm good. That's that. That was the way out that made a little bit of sense for, for a moment there. For a moment. And I understand when people say, how could somebody do something like that? I just, you know, you pull in and I go, I can shut that door. 
And then I go, but what? Like, and then of course it hits you and you go, what, God, what am I thinking here? And you know, you're leaving four kids and you're, you know, just all the, it's just crazy, but you get in that space and I couldn't get out. And you know, you just like, I couldn't wait to get out of the car and out of the garage to go, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? Was that a momentary thing one time or one were those time. thoughts persistent? Okay. No, that was once, but the depression was, that was constant where it was just like, I, I just dreaded waking up in the morning, hated it. Hated what did that, what did it feel like to you? Because people describe it in different ways, but what, what did depression on a daily basis feel like to you? It was just, it was um, as if the day is cloudy, overcast every day. Energy? Did you have any? No. No, you just don't want to do anything. I didn't, I didn't want to do anything. And I would sit downstairs at night and I would smoke a cigar and drink. You know, that would, that would be the routine every night. Just sit there. And it was that, you know, wallowing period or whatever it was, but I was just down there, didn't want to talk. And, you know, that was it. So like seven to nine o'clock, you know, that was, that was happy hours. But, you know, then you realize that I'm not, it doesn't make it any better. I'm, no. But I was trying to take away pain. And, you know, that faint pain was physical, but it was also mental. But, you know, when I, people normally don't have what I had for as long a period of time. And then older people think they're dying when they are diagnosed with this because you don't know. And, you know, I think that was, I was trying to learn a lot more about how I was going to feel in my body and what I needed to do and, and to get, some clarity here. Um, and I don't know how I got it, by the way, because you're probably going to go, well, how did you get out of this? I, I don't, I think I started to feel better about myself. Um, and I was seeing the results and then I was able to do a soul cycle. I did. And I just basically said, I worked out twice a day. I basically said to my pain, fuck you. Like you're hurting me. I'm going to hurt you. So I'd work out twice a day. I was doing soul cycle three times a week and I just attacked it. And then I felt better about myself that it felt like I was doing something back to this condition. And I, I kind of emerged from the fog. You said you'd had experience with it. What did you learn either by being taught or observing about the way to deal with this? Because sometimes that's not helpful. You can learn things that end up impeding your ability to cope with it because in past generations, it wasn't something that you admitted that you talked about. It wasn't something that was, it's not understood well now, it was understood even less well back then. Well, it was called, you had, you had mental health issues. Like you have a mental condition. Like I, that's what I was always told. Like I didn't know depression growing up. I knew people who had depression, but I mm -hmm. didn't know. It's like alcoholism is in my family. Like you know it, but I don't know what alcohol, like how many drinks do you have? It, that means you're an alcoholic. And, and I, so I didn't know any of those things. And then, you know, when I was, I didn't want to say I had mental issues, but if you say you're depressed, then what's that mean? You have something, a mental condition that you're dealing it means with. means you're sad. People think, oh, you're sad about something. I think that the- I'm depressed. Why it's stigmatized is because it's so poorly understood and people, what they would say to you as, you, as you mentioned earlier, what do you have to be depressed about? But the reality is if you investigate it, you see people like Terry Bradshaw, whom, whom we both know, Michael Phelps, Bruce Springsteen. In some ways, the more successful you are, it actually makes you 
susceptible to this. It doesn't insulate you from being depressed. It actually could accentuate the problem despite success, accolades, all those things. And was there a moment when you, you understood that through somebody's example? I thought that uh, Kevin Love was extremely brave. And, you know, even when Paul George was in the bubble, bubble talking about this, like I, anytime I hear it or I read it, my ears perk up. Like I, I just want to know because it, there, there's something about it when you talk about it and you, it, you find out so many people who can empathize, understand it, that you never thought could because you thought, God, I don't want to tell anybody this. And then you do, and then it's amazing the number of people say, you know what, I, I went through it, or these are things that I went through. Hey, if you ever need somebody to talk to. But I didn't have some magic elixir that I went, I can do this, or I can be a part of this, and you know, there are no therapy sessions. And, uh, but I do think if I did not go to Vail, Colorado, and take this experimental drug, I, I wouldn't want to talk about this today. Because... I would still have it. And I just didn't want to be on prednisone because that is, that is a horribly wonderful drug. It takes away all your pain, but man, the mood swings and I was all over the map and you know, it was just, it was kind of a mess, but I had never had more success in my career, Chris, which is crazy. Football night in America was wonderful. The Olympics is one of the best experiences. I'm handing out the Super Bowl trophy a couple of times. You know, I'm being nominated for awards. I'm going into the Broadcasting Hall of Fame. All of this in the last seven or eight years where I think I've done some of my best work, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, because I, it's like, you know, it took me X number of years to be an overnight success. Like, I've been doing this a long time. But I, I don't know. I just... I, but I that's one it, of the reasons why people don't get help, though, because they can be highly successful and achieve a lot while dealing with it. So you're thinking, wait a minute, if I, if I take some radical shift, if I do what I think should be done to get rid of this pain, is that going to mess with other parts of my life, which are going okay? I thought about taking time off from the show, but I didn't know how that was going to help me. You know, I think mentally I probably should have, but physically there was nothing I could do where I went, if I take 30 days off and go to some warm weather climate or whatever it might be, but, oh, okay, I'll be better. Um, and, you know, I think that that was the biggest challenge of, can I continue to do it? Because I was working six days a week and, you know, three hours live on radio and TV, and then you're doing football night in America. Like these are all, there's pressure in there. And then I wondered if that pressure brought about this condition because there's so much that's not known about it. I put tremendous pressure on myself. And if we got nominated for an Emmy, I'd be disappointed that we didn't win the Emmy. And, and I, I didn't enjoy the Emmy and, and all of these different awards. And I, I, you know, I think at about two or three years ago, I finally relaxed and said, you know what? You're not going to be better than Bob Costas. You're not going to win these awards. You're not going to do that. You're not, this is, you better enjoy this. Cause I waited probably the first 60 years of my life and didn't, didn't enjoy it. And I don't know if that adds to depression. I don't know if it added to my condition, but man, I wanted to beat everybody. I'm com competitive. And then I realized like I couldn't be. And you know, it was a great kick in the ass to say, Hey, dumbass, enjoy it while you can, because one day it's all over. And I, I finally got around to doing that. 
but I think being physically able to, my wife and I go play golf now. Wow. Nine holes. That's it. Nine holes. <laughs> is that because of physical condition or just playing golf as a couple? Maybe nine holes is the limit for that. Well, <laughs> let me see. Let me choose the correct answer there. Uh, it's just nice to get out every Sunday with my wife. But, but it, you know, she, she appreciates because she's like, who would have thought we would be at this point where I would, and we walk, and she would say that we're going to go play golf. So, you know, it's, it's, it's been a long run, man. And, uh, you know, I, people, I say, oh, I wouldn't wish this on anybody. I, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. I wouldn't wish it on anybody just to go through it and, and not have any kind of light at the end of the tunnel. Cause every time I'd see that light at the end of the tunnel, it felt it was two headlights and they were coming right at me. Was it helpful to hear that you are not alone? Because I think some people feel yeah. very lonely in this. When you begin to read stories of others famous or, or not famous, how did that affect you to just realize, oh, that millions, millions suffer from something similar, if not identical, to what I suffer from? I think it was everyday people. I didn't need you to have a title attached to your name because, you know, Michael Phelps and, you know, uh, Kevin Love, and, you know, those are all important things, important people, but they're important because they can tell people what this is all about and, and that I've got the most medals in Olympic history, but I was depressed. Um, that's important, but it's the everyday person who doesn't get to tell anybody that story, you know, and, and when they want to, and you listen to them and that's, what's important. I get letters all the time. Got a letter this morning where it was just a, a, a Vietnam vet. And he said, thank you for doing this. You know, we're, we're, you know, his whole world. He said, I've been suicidal. I, you know, and I struggle and I, who do you, who do I talk to? And all of a sudden I turn on the radio and you're telling me that you've gone through this. He said, just thank you for saying that. That's far more beneficial than any award you could ever. What feelings did that give you? You read that, you read that letter from this guy. What proud of yourself for, for being vulnerable. I don't know if proud, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm just glad I did it because the, look, I'm no hero. There are people who do things and gone through greater things, but if I can use a platform that does impact people in a positive way, then that's great. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm very lucky to have that platform, but it's, um, you got angry when, when Dak Prescott was criticized for showing his vulnerability Yes. and what he had gone through. Yes. Um, I mean, his he lost his death mom. by suicide. Yeah. Yes. I mean, his mom died. His brother died of a suicide. And then, you know, people, you know, to say, well, you're vulnerable. Well, you're making yourself vulnerable. I mean, you can't be a leader if you're vulnerable. Like, I, I didn't understand that logic. I'm going, oh, my God, will, will people stop doing this? Because, you know, we're stigmatizing this again. And that's the dangerous part where people are going to be afraid to come forward. Be like, oh, you're soft. What's, if that's the case, sign me up. I'm fucking soft. But I'm vulnerable. And so Dak Prescott in that moment, God, I can't imagine how vulnerable he was. And for people to say, you're the leader of a football team. That's not what leaders do. I'm more apt to follow that guy than a guy who is keeping everything inside. And I, I just, it, it angered me and probably because, you know, it was hitting me personally, but I just said, man, don't, don't do that to people. If you're going to do it to Dak Prescott, you're going to do it to, the, you know, somebody who might be in your family. Come on, yeah. toughen up. Don't be so soft. Um, I've had a couple of people who've committed suicide uh, that I know. And, if you would have said that these two people were going to kill themselves, I said, there, you, you got to be crazy. 
I, in a million years, I would have, you know, I, I, when I found out, I went, there's no way. But that's why when people go, you know, be tough, you know, don't be soft, don't be vulnerable, man. You know? I think millions have lost someone to death by suicide. I, I have as well. And you obviously wonder, why didn't they share? Why didn't I know yeah. more? Had they, what could I have done? And I think you're, you hit on it, the stigma, especially being male in this athletic the sports world. It's even an extra layer of stigma. You said something powerful, and I think everybody deserves the right to handle their situation and express or not express what's troubling them in whatever way they see fit. But you did say that you found it the opposite of selfish to share. You found it selfish when you don't share the pain you have with others. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Um, I think because if you have a message or you can relate to somebody, you're not trying to, but if you can relate to them or they hear that voice or that's somebody they see on TV. And uh, I just thought if I kept inside, and this is my wife who's saying, be selfless with this, you know, share it, share it. It's okay. Share it. And like, what am I hiding? What am I holding on to? Like, I, I'm, you know, boy, this is going to reveal me in a different way. And I think I was, I always wanted to present myself as having my shit together, you know, like, Hey, I got it all together. Hey, I, I'm doing great. And it, there's so much to it. That's fragile that it can unfold, unravel. And I, I just thought, why not just be human? <laughs> why not just be honest. And, and I, and I had to talk to my wife and she was great about it, but she kept saying, it's not about you. It's about everybody who will hear this because I was worried about me, Chris. And I was, I was forgetting this is about everybody else out there. Whoever wants to consume it in whatever way you want to consume it. That was the important part that I was missing. It was like, God, I don't, I don't know if I want to tell people I'm feeling this way or I'm forgetting her. And then she goes, it's not about you. It's about them. And that was that moment of clarity where I, I didn't even tell my wife what I was going to do. She was getting all these text messages, like my two brothers-in-law. What's, what's Dan doing? What's he talking about? She had no idea what I was doing. And then I got home and, and she said, do you want to talk about this? I said, you empowered me to be honest, and I did it. And I said, I'm sorry that I blindsided you, but I did not know I was going to do it that morning. It was around, I don't know, 9.45 in the sec first hour. And then I thought top of the hour, I'm going to do it. And I had to build up the courage to do it. And I, that's why I didn't tell anybody. I said, you know what? Full speed ahead. Here we go. If I get emotional, if I cry, whatever, let's go. And, you know, I'm glad I did it for the right reasons. There's a humility that's associated with suffering from this. And I've heard others say they don't consider themselves cured. They consider the depression to be in remission. It's to be managed, but you don't completely put it in the rearview mirror. That's them. How, how do you feel about that? Well, my condition is not in the clear. Like I wake up every day and my hands feel like I've laid bricks, my shoulders, my knees. Uh, I still have numbness in my fingers and, and toes, but I don't have that. You know, it, I, it felt like it was wearing a 200 pound vest every morning when I'd wake up. Now it feels like it's a 10 pound vest. So I have that every single day. And you know, you, you just, you know, it's there, 
and, and I think there, it's all connected that if you're, you're feeling down and you allow yourself to feel down and you go back down into that rabbit hole, that's when the walls start closing it. So I think it's all connected. And that led to me being even more depressed. When I can go out, go for a walk, when I can play golf, when I can just get up without pain, you know, then I feel like I'm, I'm a real person there. But I was feeling like I was a half a person where you're going, oh, my God, I, I can't get up without my wife holding my hand so I stabilize myself. So I, I just viewed it at, as long as I was making progress, then I, I didn't think about depression, which is kind of strange. And I don't know what it is clinically, Chris. If you, like, do we consciously think about depression or is it just it's there and you realize it's always going to be there? I don't know that, but I know my condition is still here to whatever degree. And I'm sure depression is always right around the corner. You feel that, that it's always right around the corner if the, if the condition would get worse than a 10 yeah. pound vest. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. How, how does that, how does that make you feel when you, when you don't know when it might come back or how strongly it would come back? It just motivates me to be active, to be positive, to be doing things to like, don't sit around, don't sit around. And, and you know, there are days when I take two naps in the afternoon, you know, it'd be at usually at one o'clock after the show. And then maybe around four 30, like I was in that much pain and my wife knew it. And she just, you know, uh, just said, you know, when you get up, you want to take a walk, let me know. And last thing I wanted to do was take a, a walk, but I, you know, I did it. And so I, I have to remind myself every day when we get done with this interview, I'm going to go work out. Um, it's, it, I, I have to do it. Uh, I bought a sauna because I had to, like every day I would get in that sauna. I just had to take away this, this inflammation is just, it would be, you know, depressing. It overwhelm you. And I, so I would do that and do a soul cycle. Those were things that if I didn't have those, then I think I would have been in a, in a lot of trouble. So being active, active and actually, you know, smiling, having a, having a, a good out outlook on life is as corny and simple as those things are that's what it comes down to sometimes for those who suffer it just takes the one voice whether it's michael phelps you said kevin love others for some out there that would be you you would be the voice that would connect with them and make them understand that what they're going through need not make them feel alone that there is a way out of it so what if anything that you haven't already said, would you say to someone who is coping with not the PMR, that's very specific, but the feelings and thoughts that went with that, that took you to the dark places? Well, a lot of it is as a result of something leads to depression or brings depression out from what I've been told. And I think that's where you have to talk to people. If you've gone through something that's traumatic, you've lost somebody, you have a condition, you know, that's where you have to be, just find somebody who will listen to most people just want to tell you, they just want to talk because you're the one that's stuck with it. Everybody else goes along, you know, every day with their lives. And then you want to just grab somebody and hold them and have them sit down and just say, Hey, I'm going through this. And it's not that I didn't have that. It was just after a while you didn't, you know, it wasn't cathartic for me. Like I, I, I just needed to feel better about myself. And I think the more that you, you're willing to talk to somebody. It, but more importantly, you have to have somebody who listens to you. That was the most important thing, that I had somebody who was willing to listen. 
And it could be people who were going through depression, uh, my wife, obviously. And I felt like I was important. Like what I was going through was important to them and vice versa. So when somebody says, hey, I'm going through this or, hey, did you ever feel this? I'm all ears. Like I know what that feeling is like. You can tell it in somebody's eyes when they really give a shit about what you're talking about. And when they do, it's just this unbelievable weight that goes off your shoulders where you go, okay, I can just talk to you. I always feel like, you know, the clock is running. You know, I work in a business where the clock is always running. And when I sit down to talk to somebody, I always think they're going to go, I got about two and a half minutes to get this in. And, and then you could just see where they're kind of going blank or they look at their watch and got to be there. Meanwhile, I'm saying, and then my wife and I couldn't get up and I couldn't tie my shoot. And then they're going, okay, Hey, we'll see you again, Dan. Nice to talk to you. And like, Oh, why did I reveal myself like that? But talk to somebody and just know that you're not in it alone. You're not, but you got to find somebody that you trust that loves you, that cares and will listen to you. And then you try to find a solution. I am so grateful to Dan for opening up like that. It's been said that what mental health needs is more sunlight, more candor, and more unashamed conversation. And Dan's hope and ours is that someone hearing this will be helped. If you're seeking help or information, there are many places to turn. Psychologytoday.com and apa.org have resources to find a therapist. For people in crisis, there's a website, suicidepreventionlifeline.org, suicidepreventionlifeline.org, and a phone number, 1-800-273-8255, 800-273-TALK. The next episode of this podcast, published a couple days after this one, features Gary Goleman, His story of managing his anxiety and depression really is uplifting and hopeful. Gary's comedy special, The Great Depression, is essential viewing for those interested in this topic, and it's also very, very funny. As always, thanks to my co-executive producer, Jennifer Dempster, and producer, Jason Weichel. I would appreciate it if you'd subscribe, rate, and review this podcast, and I'll talk to you soon.